good morning. Good, I was glad that was on. I am partially colorblind, so when he says push the button until the green light appears, that creates a little angst when you're getting up to preach, but sounds like I hit the right color there. So, Welcome, we're so glad you're here this morning, especially to our visitors. Welcome, thank you for joining us. We hope that we'll have an opportunity to get to know you better. Um, For those of you that are trying to figure out, I know it's hard to tell from this distance because we look so much alike. I'm not Tony. Tony is away this morning, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to try to deliver God's Word this morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name's Stephen Heffington. My wife and I are fairly new. We moved to Alaska in December, so we're fairly new to the area. I would point her out, but if this doesn't go well, she's going to sneak out without anybody knowing who she was, so I won't draw any attention to her. Um, If you have not had an opportunity, I do have an outline. During the ladies' um, breakfast a couple weeks ago, my wife said some people mentioned, hey, what if we tried an outline? And so there are some printed outlines. If you want to take a second and step out and get one of those, they're in the lobby. You're welcome to do that. And it might help with the study and with keeping up with what we're going through. Um, You may look at the title, Jesus Walks on the Water, and you may think, oh, this is a kid's story. Oh, this is one of those stories I've heard a thousand times. I want to take a quick minute to to plug the idea of kids' stories. So this summer, on Wednesday night, I'm going to be teaching the adult Bible class, and we're going to take a minute to go through what we we might call kids' stories. Those stories that if you grew up in the church, you heard a thousand times, right? Oh, we teach them to kids. But I'm going to challenge us. I'm going to challenge us to think differently because I don't think I don't think this book contains a single kid's story. I think this book contains some stories that are useful for everybody. And we're going to dig deep into some of those quote-unquote kid stories this summer. And we're hopefully going to do that today with a couple of the stories. As we begin, let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning that you've given to us, for the opportunity we've had to praise you in song and gather around your table. Bless this time now as we dive into your word. May you speak to us, and may we open your word in a way that glorifies you. May we notice the things you would have us to notice and learn the things you would have us to learn. Thank you for this opportunity, Lord. It's through your Son's name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to talk to someone who's not a Christian or somebody we'll call them out in the world about the Bible. What I found is the average person who's not a Christian doesn't know much about the Bible. If you don't believe me, Turn on Jeopardy. Have you ever seen Jeopardy and the Bible category comes up? And I'll tell you this, I've watched it before, and and I've never had a question on there I couldn't answer. Not because I'm some great Bible scholar. I bet our average kindergarten student could answer the $1,000 question on Jeopardy. What I found is the average person who's not a Christian doesn't know much about the Bible, right? They don't really spend that much time learning about the Bible. And so they... They don't know the trivia. They don't know the, the, what Jesus did. They kind of get lost in things. In fact, what we find is people hear a verse of the Bible and they take it out of context. So if you remember in the 80s and 90s, everybody remember the NFL games? Do you remember what sign was always held up behind the goalpost? John 3.16, you remember that? I see a few of you shaking, right? And John 3.16 was the most known verse to the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the world said, see, if you believe in God, you're going to go to heaven. Wrong. That's not what that verse says. There's more to it than that. But that's what they like to do, take it out of context. That verse, by the way, is no longer the most common verse quoted by the world. Anybody know what it is? It used to be. God is love, right? That verse came out of context. God is love, love is love, God loves everybody. But nowadays, the most common verse quoted by the world 
Judge not lest you be judged. That's what they like to put out there, right? They like to take it out of context and say, you can't judge me. Boy, that's a misunderstanding of biblical judgment. Why do I say all that? Well, because even the world that can't answer the Jeopardy trivia questions, even the world that takes verses out of context, even the world that doesn't know the Bible tends to know this story. Jesus walks on the water. We see references to this in pop culture. In fact, if you watch the movie The Da Vinci Code, towards the end, there's a reference to this, right? When she acts like she's going to walk on the water. It's a reference to Jesus walking on the water. Even the average person knows this event occurred. But it's not a kid's story. I challenge us when we think about kid's stories because they're simple, that we also sometimes say they're superficial, and that's not the case. I think this story may be simple, but it can be very, very powerful. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Jesus Walks on the Water. We're going to read through Matthew chapter 14's account of Jesus Walks on the Water. If you want to be turning there, we'll be beginning in verse 22, and I'll have it on the screen. But this story is also found in Mark chapter 6 and John chapter 6. And it's a story that hopefully even as Christians, even as people who have studied this a million times, Mike can get something out of this story. It is a rather lengthy reading, and I apologize for that, but I want to read through it first before we dive in. Beginning in verse 22 from Matthew chapter 14, And immediately he made the disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from land. It was beaten by the waves, for the wind was against it. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they cried out. They were terrified. It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So let's set the scene for the story here. If you know what's happened earlier in the day, this has been a really bad day for Jesus. The day starts out because he learns his good friend John the Baptist has died. He goes off to be by himself, but he's not able to because thousands of people track him down. So he spends the day teaching and healing. And we get to the end of the day, and they have nothing to eat, and that's where we get the story of feeding the 5,000. And we're actually going to backtrack tonight, and we're going to dive into that story just a little bit. But after Jesus feeds the 5,000, that's where we pick up in verse 22. When he made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side, and he went off by himself up to the mountain to, to pray. And it says that the fourth watch of the night, and if you know what time that is, that's about 3 a.m. So 6 p.m. is the first watch, 9 p.m., midnight, about 3 a.m. or so. Jesus looks out and he sees the boat out in the sea. He's fighting against the winds and the waves. And if you read Mark's account, Jesus doesn't go to walk out to them. Jesus actually goes to walk past them to go ahead and go to the other side. And as he's walking across the water, the people in the boat look out, and at first they don't know who they see. Is it a ghost? And then they realize it's Jesus, and they cry out. Jesus comes over to the boat, 
he tells Peter to get out of the boat. And I've always wondered why 12 people didn't get out of the boat, right? Come out of, but only one person did, got out of the boat, and, Jesus is wa- and Peter's walking on the water. Peter's walking on the water until he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he starts to sink, and he has to cry out, and Jesus saves him. And then they get into the boat, the wind cease, and they worship him. So I want us to take a minute to look through this story and see if there's some things. I have seven things I think we might can learn from this. And they're on your outline there as we go through it. So the first thing, again, this is the end of a long day. Jesus has gotten some bad news. It's an emotional day. He's lost a friend. It's a tiring day. He's been teaching, healing. He just fed 5,000. You ever had a day that's just not gone well? Or maybe it's gone well, but it's just been busy. Or maybe that day has just been a long work day, or you got some bad news, or you've had to face a loss or a trouble, or something's going on. It's just been a bad day. What do you do at the end of the day? See, the world will tell us, right, let's go down to the bar and grab a drink, right? Let's drink our problems away. Let's take a medication to make us forget. There's lots of things where the world will tell us to do. But what does Jesus decide to do, right, at the end of this long day, at the end of this tiring day? What we see first is, in verse 23, he decides to go off by himself. And before we dive into this deeper, I want to take a minute to talk about this because I often feel guilty if I ever take time by myself. You ever felt guilty being away from your family? You ever felt guilty telling somebody at church, I'm sorry, I I just don't have the time to do that? Or at work, I can't take on this project? I'm really bad about not saying no, and we'll talk about that a little tonight. I'm really bad about feeling guilty if I take any time for myself. But Jesus, the Son of God, the all-knowing creator of the universe, at the end of this day said, I want to be alone. I'm going to take a minute to go off by myself. I'm going to take a little while to go be alone, to be away from the crowds, to be away from his friends, to be away from everyone else. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 23, It says that he was off to be alone by himself to pray. Wow. At the end of the hard day, a day in which has been emotional, a day which has worn him out, a day in which he wants to be alone, he sees the value in going off by himself to pray. Now think about this. If there was ever anyone who could say they didn't need to pray, wouldn't it be Jesus? I mean, he knows God. He's been in the presence of God for all eternity. He's been in heaven. He knows the will of God. He doesn't have to pray that he can meet God or know God or understand God's will better. Jesus doesn't have to do any of that. But yet he still sees the value of prayer. How much more should I as a man, a fallible man, a man who doesn't have that relationship, want to use that time to pray? When I was younger, I remember the first verse I ever memorized. Well, actually, it was the second verse. The first verse I ever memorized was Jesus wept. Everybody memorized that because it was John eleven thirty five, the shortest, right? You've got to memorize a verse by next week. You forget to memorize it. And so as a kid, you memorize the shortest. The second was 1 Thessalonians five seventeen. Pray without ceasing, or depending on your version, pray continuously. And that's a very perplexing verse as a child. How do I pray all the time? How do I pray without ceasing? But what we see is we look at the life of Jesus and we see he prayed continuously. Not because everything he said was a prayer, but because in every part of his life he engaged in prayer. See, we we learn about prayer from Jesus, right? 
We learn about prayer from Jesus because he gives us the Lord's Prayer. But that's not the only way we learn about prayer from Jesus. We learn, I think, more about prayer from Jesus in his habits, in the way that he prayed. See, we know that Jesus didn't always pray the Lord's Prayer. right? We know that there were other types of prayers he prayed because we see them. When we look at Luke chapter 22 and verse 39, in fact, there's a verse there. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus, again, is facing a bad day. And he goes to Gethsemane, and there's a, there's a phrase that shows up there. He goes to pray, as was his custom. Or we might say, as was his habit. Jesus had a habit of prayer. Was it a good day? Prayer. Was it a bad day? Prayer. We're about to have a blessing of a meal? Prayer. And about to do a miracle? Prayer. And so there's a lesson there for me to learn and how I should engage prayer in every aspect of my life. In James chapter 5, we see an illustration where it's talking about as a Christian, are things going well, you should share it with your family. Are things going poorly, you should take it to God in prayer. Are you sick, then you should have the elders come pray for you because the fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. We learn in James chapter 5. Prayer should be something that we do automatically in every situation. Jesus has had a long day, and he went off to pray. Jesus has had an emotional day, and he went off to pray. We have a bad day, we should go in prayer. But when we have a good day, we should go to prayer. We've had a long day, we should go to prayer. Tony talked about a couple weeks ago about, oh, I've had a bad day. And he said, did you really have a bad day, or was it a bad hour in the day? You know, maybe if we incorporated prayer more into those days, we would start to recognize there's more good than bad, right? We would start to recognize that sometimes even those bad things, and we'll talk about this, may be good things. Jesus went by himself. He went to be alone and to pray. And there's value in that for us. The next thing, I'm going to back up a verse in chapter, in, in verse 22. And this is going to go against pop culture. This is going to go against uh, modern-day Christianity. If you go to the store and you look in the Christian section and you pull out a buck, what I'm about to say is going to go against what all the popular Christian writers are going to say. Let me ask you this. Jesus gets to the end of the day. He sends his disciples down to the boat, right? He made them, is what verse 22 tells He made them go to the boat. Jesus, the Creator, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus, the all-knowing, made his disciples get into the boat. Did he know the storm was coming? Did he know there was going to be a storm out on the sea? Did he know they were going to face a hardship? Did he know they might drown? Did he know it was going to be a challenge? My answer is yes. Jesus knew the storm was coming, and he put them in the boat and sent them out anyway. He didn't say, why don't you go to the shore, wait for the storm to pass, and get in the boat? Why don't you go to the shore and then I'll come out and rescue you when the storm hits? Why don't you go down there and get across before the storm comes? In fact, what Jesus did is he knew the storm was coming and he sent his disciples into the storm. Now, what does that mean? Oh, that means Jesus will always deliver us from the storm. No, 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 no. Let's spend a few minutes talking about this. Let's spend a few minutes talking about the storms of life that come into our life. We might call them trials or challenges or tribulations. And in fact, in 1 Peter chapter 1, we see where Peter says, we should rejoice when we face those various trials because they test the genuineness of our faith. Jesus saw this as an opportunity to test the genuineness of the faith of his disciples. 
He knew there was something to be gained by what they were about to experience. He knew that he was going to be able to glorify God by what they were about to go through. In James chapter 1 and verse 2 says we should rejoice in various trials. That is a challenging verse for me because I do not rejoice when I face hardships in life. It is hard for me to do that. But he says you should rejoice in various trials because as you face those trials, the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And if you endure through the steadfastness, you will receive a crown of life. We are supposed to rejoice as we face these hardships. Jesus sent his disciples into the storm. God does not promise to spare us from the storms of life. Now, this is not a oh, gloom and doom. Remember, those storms have a purpose. Those storms are supposed to be something that tests our faith, that help us to grow. It's supposed to be something we rejoice in. God doesn't promise to spare us from the storms of life. In fact, he sometimes brings those storms. He sometimes sends us out into the storms. In Luke chapter 22, he's sending his disciples out. Why does he tell them to take a sword? If God's going to spare them from any hardships, if God is going to protect them no matter what comes, why take a sword? In Luke chapter 6 and in Matthew chapter 10, another time when he's sending them out, he says, you're going to face hardships. It's going to be rough. It's going to be tough. You're going to face hunger. You're going to face people persecuting you. And he sends them out anyway. God doesn't promise that he will always deliver us from the storms. But he promises to be there with us during the storms. And he promises there is a reward, there is a benefit when we go through those storms. We can test our faith. We can prove it to be genuine. We can create steadfastness. It can lead to a crown of life. Jesus chose to send his disciples into the storm because he knew it was going to benefit them. I have several statements on the outline that are going to be pretty basic, and you're going to think, you know, Stephen, that's kind of a, you know, again, this is kind of a kid's story. You're going to say something this basic. But I think if I'm not reminded regularly of some of the challenges in life and what I should be doing, I forget. And this next one's going to be one of those. The disciples are out into the boat. They're out on the water, the winds, the waves. They're worried. They're anxious. They aren't making headway. And they look out, and they see Jesus. Now, arguably, they didn't recognize him at first. But they did look out, and they saw Jesus. And the lesson I keep telling myself is, when I'm going through those difficult times, when I'm going through those hardships, when I'm facing those storms of life, or when things are going well, I should always look to Jesus. And you say, well, that's, that's pretty basic. Again, that's not really anything in depth, really. Because I live in a world that's pretty hectic. How about you? I have a life that's pretty busy. How about you? I have a life that has a lot of distractions in it. Because most of my day is spent on things like, how do I pay the bills? How do I do my job? I have a wife that has a, we have a pretty good relationship. We're still together. 28 years. We've been together a little while. But that takes some time and effort. I have two daughters that live in other states. I have a lot of things going on in my life. How about you? And it is very easy for me to look in a lot of places and at a lot of things. But what I should be looking to is Jesus. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 says that we should look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Think of the story of of the disciple Stephen, and he's being stoned. That's a pretty bad day, right? He is in the midst of dying. And what does he do? Remember in the story in Acts chapter 7? He looks to heaven, and the heavens open up, and what does he see? He sees Jesus. 
when we're going through the hardships of life, when we're going through difficult times, when things are challenging, when we're facing those trials and tribulations, what we should be doing is looking to Jesus. And this is important because you're either looking to Jesus or you're looking at the world. There is no in-between. I can't be looking at both. I can't be looking in the middle. And any time I take my focus off of Jesus, my focus has now become the world. And when I start looking at the world, guess what? I become like Peter when he got out of the boat. What happened when Jesus started looking at what was going on around him? He got weighed down, didn't he? He started to sink. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things of this world. He knew firsthand that when he took his eyes off of Jesus, he almost died. He knew firsthand that when he took his eyes, his focus away from Jesus, he started to drown. He knew the importance of keeping our eyes focused on Jesus. Because it's either focused on Jesus or it's focused on the world. We do give Peter a hard time in this story, right? I mean, silly Peter, he took his eyes off of Jesus and started to sink. But let's go back right before that. Again, how many of those disciples got out of the boat, right? Just one. Peter says, if it's you, command me to get out. And Jesus gives a command. He says, come. And what is Peter's response? He got out of the boat. Boy, he did exactly what Jesus told him to do. When Jesus commands, I should be ready to obey. Period. Not with explanation. Not on my time. Not if it makes sense. Not if I can understand the reason why. When Jesus commands, I should obey. Peter steps out of the boat. Because he knows the commands of Jesus aren't optional. James chapter 1 says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself, but do what it says. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. See, the commands of Jesus, not only are they not optional, but when we obey them, it shows that we love him. When we obey him, it shows that we are his. It shows that we're different. And we live in a world that doesn't like obedience. I'm not just talking about obedience to God. We live in a world right now that's pretty much, hey, you do your own thing, right? You be you. You do what's right for you. Your, your truth and my truth can be different, and that's okay. That law, if you don't like it, you just go against it. We live in a world that is all about not obeying, that's all about relative commands that's all about relative truth that's not the way it works with jesus when he commands we obey we live in a world even more so that says the word of god the word of god doesn't even matter right the word of god was right it was situational it was culturally specific it was historically specific they didn't really mean what they said about women and women's roles. They didn't really mean what they said about humbleness or service or homosexuality. They really mean to get all the way wet. That stuff doesn't make sense, and so do we really need to obey it? That's the world we live in, a world that says all of that, all of that stuff was just relative to the culture, relative to history. But we know different. When Jesus obeys, we're supposed to command. When Jesus commands, we're supposed to obey the world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God will live forever. First John chapter 2. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Matthew chapter 7. Obedience shows that we're his. Obedience shows that we love him. And obedience will lead to eternal life. This next one is the most challenging statement I put on the outline. It's the most challenging statement because I'll get back to what I said earlier. 
I live in a life that's full of a lot of activity. There's a lot of hectic things going on in this world. There's a lot of busy things going on in my life. There's a lot of things that I can't control. And if you were to ask my wife or either one of my daughters, they would probably tell you that I like to be in control of things, which is, of course, a fallacy. You are not really in control of much. But I can count on one hand the number of times that I've been in the car with my wife that I wasn't driving because I like to be the one driving and because she drives too slow and won't get out of the right lane, but that's a separate conversation. I like to be in control, right? And see, what happens is when I'm not in control, when there's things that I can't control, when there's things that are going on in my life, I get anxious. A little conflict occurs, things that I can't fix. And all of a sudden, I start to see this storm brewing. I start to see the challenges come in my life. And what I've had to realize that when I have peace in my life, it's not because there's no challenge. It's not because there's not a storm. What I've realized is that peace is not found in the absence of the storm, but in the presence of Jesus. Because, see, I can't control the storms of life. I can't control the trials that come up. I can't control the tribulations and challenges. But what I can control is who I go through it with. And it's Jesus' presence in my life that changes the way I view things. Isaiah chapter 9 describes Jesus, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. In John chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. If we have Jesus in our lives, if we have our eyes focused on Jesus, if we are obeying what Jesus commands, we're going to have peace. Not because we don't have hardships. But Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about the idea that worrying about what you eat, worrying about where you live, that's not what we should be worried about. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks about our relationships and how we treat others. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul talks about death and the fact that as a Christian we view death differently. None of those things say that, Christ, that Christians don't have to eat or have a place to sleep or have problems with relationships or face death with themselves or their loved ones. The difference is not that we face those trials. The difference is who we face them with. And having Jesus in our lives changes, changes the way we face them. That's what brings about peace. So I can tell you in my career, unfortunately, I've had to deliver bad news thousands of times. As a surgeon, I diagnosed people with cancer. I had surgeries that didn't go well. I can remember having patients that came to the ER and or the tra- through the trauma center that didn't make it. I can remember telling people, you have a cancer that can't be treated, or this treatment didn't work, or your spouse or your child or your parent is now gone. And most of the time, I can tell whether they are people of faith and how they react to that and how they face it. Not because they didn't face it with grief when they lost a loved one. Not because there wasn't an unknown. Not because there wasn't worry. But because they faced it with a faith that had Jesus in their life. And there's a difference in how we face things when we have Jesus in our lives. It doesn't mean we don't suffer and it doesn't mean we won't go through it. Think of the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? The fiery furnace, again, one of those kids' stories, right, that has a pretty deep meaning. 
one of the things we do in that is we say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't afraid to go to the fiery furnace because they knew God would bring them through it. And I'll tell you, that's not what the story says. In fact, if you go to Daniel chapter 3 and verse 18, they even say to the king, Our God can deliver us, but if he chooses not to, we're still not going to do it. In other words, we may die in that fiery furnace. He may not deliver us from the fiery furnace. So be it. It wasn't the fiery furnace that was the problem. It was whether or not they had faith in God, and they did. Peace isn't because we don't face the fiery furnace. Peace isn't because there's no storm. Peace is not the absence of the hardships. It is the presence of Jesus. As we go through the story in in verse 33... We see a pretty neat thing that happens. We've already talked about prayer, and it will play into this a little bit. But Jesus and Peter get into the boat, and what do the the disciples say? Truly, you're the Son of God. Truly, you are the Son of God. And they worshipped him. They worshipped him. Now, they've been in the middle of this storm. They've been worried about their lives. And all of a sudden, they decide to worship him. I think about my life in worship. Now, when I talk about worship, part of it is what we do this morning, right? This is what we would call corporate worship or, as the Apostle Paul phrases it in some of the come-together worship, right? And that's an important part of worship. That's important in what we do. However, there's also personal worship that I should have in my life. There's also times when I should bow down to God and praise Him for what He's done. There's times where I should bow down to God and worship Him for who He is. Think of the story of Job. You remember that story? This great man, this rich man. And throughout the book of Job, we see him worshiping. But go back to the first chapter. You don't have to go very far into the story. And Job's here, and the servants come in, and the people come in, and they say, all your animals, right? They've been stolen. They're gone. You've lost all your material blessings. And then another servant comes in and says, your whole family, they've been killed by a storm. That's a pretty bad day. In fact, it's one of the worst things we see in all of the Bible, save the crucifixion of Jesus. It's just a bad day. Everything he has, everyone is gone, abandoned, lost, dead, stolen. You don't even get to the end of the first chapter and what's Job's response? He bows down and he worships. We don't just worship when things are going well. We don't just worship when we have Thanksgiving. We worship not because of the way things are going in our lives. We worship because of who God is. Our go-to response should always be worship. If it's going well, we should worship. If it's going poorly, we should worship. We have Thanksgiving, we should worship. Things are going badly, long day, short day, we should worship. That should be our go-to response. Not because of what's going on in our life, but because of who God is. We worship because of who God is. I do think that oftentimes we view worship as something we have to do. Right? We have to come on Sunday mornings. Right? We have to come on Sunday nights. We should be viewing worship differently as the opportunity to worship, the privilege to worship. And if we made it something that we did in response to all of the things that occur in our life, perhaps it would be more normal to us that we worship whenever anything happens. A good day, a bad day, a long day, a short day, we bow down and worship. Worship should be our go-to response in each and every situation. The last point I'll make is the most important point that I'll make all day. It is also the simplest point that I'll make all day. You see, the disciples were out on the boat. 
and they were struggling and they were surely going to sink. I, I don't know if you've ever been in that type of situation, so um, I can remember the first time I went whitewater rafting on the Ocoee River. The Ocoee River is in far east Tennessee and North Carolina. It's one of the best rivers to whitewater raft in the nation. has a lot of Class 5 rapids. In fact, the 96 Olympics, when they were doing the kayaking, they did it on the Ocoee River. And I can remember the first time I went, I was a little intimidated. I was a little scared. Um, because you start to see these rapids and you think, what happens if I fall out of the boat, right? Am I going to be saved? And I can remember the guide. He'd been guiding for about 15 years. And he had this bag that had a rope tied up in it. And he said, if you go out of the water, you just put your hands up, and I'll throw this no matter where you are. It'll hit your hands. You grab the rope, and we'll pull you in. And I thought, well, that does make me feel better that if I go into the water, I'm going to be saved by a rope or a life jacket or a lifeguard or a guide. Or a See, when we're going through difficult times in life, we want, to, we want to be saved, right? When we face the storms of life, we want to be saved. And I'll say initially that that only Jesus saves us from those storms of life, and only Jesus saves us from those hardships. But that's not the purpose of the story, nor is that the purpose of the sermon. See, if the only thing Jesus did is he saves us from going through hardships in life, then Jesus isn't much of a Savior. If the only thing Jesus did is he saves us from the challenges we face, then Jesus isn't much of a Savior. The key is only Jesus saves us, but he saves us from our sins. And that's the point of the story. That's the point of the sermon. Not that, oh, if I have Jesus next to me, life is going to be great. No, it's not. Life is going to have challenges and hardships. The point is, if I have Jesus, if I am his, Jesus will save me from sin and death. That's what Jesus does. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, And there is, no, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men with which we must be saved. Jesus is it. He's the only one who saves us. He says in John 14 and in verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we'll spend some time tonight talking about Luke chapter 19 and verse 10. And it tells us the reason he came. He came to seek and save the lost. Jesus didn't come to make life full of roses. He didn't come to keep the storms from coming into life. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, of which I was one, of which you were one. But for Jesus to save us, we've got to go back to one of those earlier points. We need to obey what he commanded. Jesus has a pattern placed out for salvation. We have to hear his word, believe what it says, repent, turn away from that life, confess his name before men, and then be immersed in the watery grave of baptism, raised to live anew for him. And it could be that this morning you want the opportunity to be saved by Jesus. And now is a great time to make that choice. However, it could be as a Christian... Perhaps you're facing a storm of life, a challenge, and you want the prayers of the congregation, or perhaps we haven't kept our eyes focused where they should be. Whatever that need is, won't you come while we stand and sing?